Where you going? No, man. You got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Well, it's Worship Wednesday. Thank God. You're watching The Road to Concord with Professor no, Joe Bacanova. Okay, praise God. Yahweh. Hallelujah. Yeah. Homeroom is on Rumble. Just go to Rumble and search the channels for The Road to Concord. Now it's one word. When you find it, go ahead and you click follow. Might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube. Hey, we're on YouTube today. <laughs> then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's theroadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at theroadtoconcord.com. He's a little slow, but he's catching up. So uh, eventually you'll get an email back. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Uh, just warn them about Joe. You know, he's an acquired taste. Yeah, he's tasty. Tomorrow he'll be really tasty. <laughs> I'll be donating. Hey, we donated. all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. I still need to slap Aaron in the head. <clears throat> and I can't talk like that. It's Wednesday. I still have to bless Aaron for giving me the title of professor. Uh, how's that? Um, <laughs> Joe? <laughs> uh, real quick, before we even get going today, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I, I, I was doing my best last night to get this lesson done tight, very well. I wanted it to be great. Yeah, yeah, well. Mm -hmm. Yahweh said, go to bed, Joe. I, I was falling asleep while I was doing it. So I had to finish putting it together this morning. I still think I've got a class worth your time. So hang with me here, folks. We are starting from the very basics. This is the second in a series here on Bible 101 or Faith 101. And I mean, when we say basics, the first question I have for you today is, what is the Bible? And I literally mean, what is the Bible? And we will go from there today. But before we get going, before we even begin, I have a very simple question. Why study with me? There are billions and millions and trillions of talking heads out there for you to talk to you about scripture. Why are you here with me? That's a question I wish I had an answer to. I do not have a seminary degree. My degrees are in philosophy and sociology and almost engineering. However, I do bring my training as a philosopher to my studies of the scriptures, and it has apparently made me a little bit different than most folks. As Charlie found out this morning, I ask different questions than most people do. And it leads me to some interesting places. <clears throat> I've He's good of... at asking questions. <laughs> yeah, well, the answers are usually interesting, though. So when I come at the scriptures, I just want to explain my approach to all of this before we get going. 
I ask myself all the time, attitude and intent. What, what, what is my intent here? Why am I studying the scriptures? And do I have a sufficiently reverent or right attitude here? And then I, I try to be serious about it, folks. I set aside time where there's going to be, looks like you're sleepy, Joe. I am, dude. I am. I've been burning the uh, road dog. I've been burning the candle at too many ends lately. Um, my father told me the other day, I've gotten so busy, I'm going to meet myself going the other way here soon. I think I did last night. Now, I apologize, folks. So this is me with both both halves of my brain tied behind my back. So let's see how well I do. So when I study, I set time out aside for this so that there are no distractions. I want to focus on what I'm doing. And I tend to have a dedicated space for when I study. It, my serious studies are usually done at my desk at home with all my references at my fingertips. I know that not everybody is blessed enough to be able to afford the library I have. And mine's not nearly as large as I would like it to be. But some folks can attest to the fact that there's a fairly sizable scripture reference library sitting my, on my right-hand side when I'm in my office at home. So I do that, and, and I study to understand. And if I can encourage you to do anything, understand it's quality over quantity. The scripture says precept upon precept. You learn one thing and then another. A lot of the things, it, it, why I don't understand you're with me, because I expect you look at me and you see the same thing when I look at anybody else on the internet telling me about scripture. I would expect you look at me and you think you think just another idiot who thinks he's found the answers. The problem is every now and then I find a teacher out there who actually does seem to understand the scripture. And once I do, I drain him for every piece of information I can get out of him. David Paulson and Michael Heiser. Those are the only two that in recent times that I found that I really like a lot. Both of them have been called home in the last you know, several years. Other than that, all my teachers are dead, but they left me their books. So I study and I take notes and I test myself over and over and over again. I tell myself I always have to be ready to adapt to a new, to new information or a new understanding because I know that the scriptures tell me that's how Yahweh is going to work. I'll understand it at a certain level until he's ready, until he's grown me, and then I'll understand another level deeper. I got to be ready to let go of what I thought I knew and take the new information given to me and the new understanding and work that into my greater picture of things. I cannot become rigid. That makes me dogmatic and that will hinder or stunt my spiritual growth. I have to become comfortable with uncertainty. What I know, I might not truly know. What I think I understand, I might not have it perfect. I've got to be happy with that that's where true faith comes in. I just trust God, Yahweh. He's going to take care of this. For me, spiritual growth has begun because of this way of approaching Yahweh's word, God's word. So this is where we're going to begin today with that kind of attitude. And if that helps, you know, if that's the type of person you want to study with, then I guess, I guess I'm okay to be studying with. So what is the Bible? Oh, well, you know, me definitions, right? What is the meaning of the word Bible? The word Bible comes from the Greek Biblia, meaning books. The Greek word Biblia itself is derived from Biblion, meaning paper, book, or scroll. And it was a uh, diminutive word of Biblios or papyrus. 
and hence biblios is the root word for bio, uh, biblia and the name comes from the phoenician port biblios where egyptian papyrus was exported to in greece so the word's connected to paper and what you end up with is the word bible it was used by hellenistic jews to refer to their sacred books the tabiblia the septuagint in particular and that was the greek version of the hebrew scriptures and we'll get to that again in a minute or two here the Christian scriptures were referred to in Greek as Ta Biblia as early as 223 AD. The word Bible itself was not found in any book of the Bible. That's not there. So we just, Bible is the English word that we have inherited for the collection of books, which in the Old Testament times would have been scrolls. And this has caused a lot of trouble amongst those who believe which book goes in that bible well we're going to tackle some of that today we're not going to make any definitive conclusions about anything what we're basically going to be doing is looking at trying to understand how we got here now essentially what does the bible claim to be it claims to be the inspired word of god yahweh that god and that means it's his revelation about himself and his nature, his declarations as to the meaning and purpose of life, his instructions for how to live a righteous life, otherwise known as Torah. I know that Jews would tell you, no, that's only the first five books of the Bible. That's not what Jesus called it, not what Yeshua called it. He said the 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 right, you know, the Torah and the prophets, you know, the law and the prophets. That's a way of saying the whole Tanakh, the whole Old Testament is Torah. And he even told the Pharisees, is it not written in your Torah? And then he quoted Psalms 82. So Psalms is Torah, according to Yeshua. And Yeshua is the word of Yahweh made flesh, meaning he's the Torah made flesh. So he's the ultimate authority. But the Bible is also a history book. It's a book of Hebrew wisdom. Who did that? I didn't do that either. I didn't touch nothing. Uh, we've got. Must have been Natasha. We've got, we've got spirits running around in the house because my hand wasn't even on the mouse. Sorry, folks. That I don't know how that happened. But the Bible's a book of Hebrew wisdom. It's a book of poetry. It's a book of prophecy. It's written in different languages. It has all the things you'd expect to find in it dealing with languages. You got figures of speech, idioms, polemics. It is a rich piece of literature. We should approach it as that. What's in the Bible? Well, like I said, it's not one book. The basic core canon is 66 books. Like I said, written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. It's been written over 1,600 years, 1,500 B.C. to 100 A.D. Various genres, like I was just saying, stories, history, poems, prophecy, proverbs, songs, etc. Various authors, kings, peasants, prophets, doctors, tax collectors, etc., etc., this is a complicated work that we're dealing with here. Uh, comment on the board here by Dip by DDT. Basic instructions before leaving Earth. Yes, I know. <laughs> Humor is a good thing. Some thoughts on language and translation. <laughs> okay, let's just talk about language real quick because I got a, a note here on translation in a little bit. Language is a specific, specialized subset of logic. Ergo, it's in my wheelhouse. The concept, the ideas, 
behind language. Language is nothing more than human beings assigning labels, symbols to thoughts and ideas, concepts. In, in our modern world, we call them words. And the word is made up of other symbols, in this case, letters. And the letters have inherently attached rules to them for how you use the letters to form the, the syllables and vowels of, uh, you know, the sounds that make the word. This is all, if you look at it from my perspective as a philosopher, a logistician, what you see up there on that screen, some thoughts on language and translation, that's just, that's just formal logic right there. If you've been in any of my logic classes, you've seen sometimes how I write out formal logical arguments. It kind of looks a little bit like computer programming. Well, that's what I see right there. The S tells me, in this case, the O without a vowel after it, you know, whatever tells me, and the E after the M tells me O, so some. I know how to pronounce the word some. It's just logical shorthand right there. You're not taught to look at it that way. I was. So remember the classes I teach you perspective. Language is like this. So one of the things you have to remember is there's nothing magical about the word. Concept behind it that holds the meaning. So some could mean a couple, a few, part of, a little of, you know, something like that. It could also, I could, I could have come up to you and said some means the deity in heaven. So instead of God, you would be thinking some means the deity in heaven. It's just a label. I have seen so many believers come to, in some cases, yeah, blows over fighting over words. Paul tells you not to do that. I beg you to understand how lang a little bit about how language works. Wrap your own head around it on your time someday. This is just man's, it's a logical shorthand that you've been taught without realizing that's what you were taught. Tell you how to put the, the sounds together that, that represent the thoughts behind them. And that's all this is. This is just a symbol. You think hieroglyphics are pictures. Folks, what you're seeing on the screen right there, some thoughts on language and trend, that's just hieroglyphics. Those are pictures. It's just a specialized form of a picture. We call it letters and language and words but it's just a specialized form of a picture. That's all this is. So please keep in mind that that's basically what's going on with our Bible here. So there's no magic in Hebrew. There's no magic in Greek. There's no magic in any particular word you assign anything. It's all about conveying the thought or idea to somebody else who's not there with you. you know, it's on a written page, been written to somebody thousands of years in the future. You expect that they know the rules. So how did we get the Bible? Okay, that's a good question. Essentially, if we take the Bible on its terms, we got it from the written records that were recording direct revelations with Yahweh or his Holy Spirit. Men, women who bumped right into him. Boom, oh, there he is. Physical material oh, talking to me. Yeah, that happened. Or he showed up in various forms like fire, flame, or smoke, or a cloud. And he, somehow or another, I don't know how it happened, directly spoke to these people and they recorded their encounters. It's also personal encounters with Yahweh or his messengers, sometimes through his angels. 
direct from the Messiah in his examples and from his, his apostles. That's the recording of the Gospels. We also have it from pastoral letters written by his apostles. Paul, James, Jude, Peter, John. They taught us. <laughs> Seems we have trouble on the feeds again today. Yeah, Facebook is uh, not liking our show today. Folks, this is a day where I expect we're going to have trouble. So just know that it's coming. So that's how we've got the, the scriptures. But when, when most people say, how did we get the scriptures? What they're talking about is the canon. I don't think that way when you go, how'd you get the scriptures? To me, this is how you got them. Holy Spirit, God, they made it happen. So what is the canon of scripture? This is what most people mean. How did we get the, the 66 books of the Bible we're reading? It's called canon. How did we get that? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. First, what exactly does canon mean? You know, me and definitions, right? This is Webster's 1828 Dictionary, folks. I like going back to it. It says, in ecclesiastical affairs and religious affairs, it's a law or a rule of, or of doctrine or discipline enacted by a council and confirmed by the sovereign, meaning Yahweh. A decision of matters in religion or a regulation or of policy or discipline by general provincial council. A law or rule in general. Or it's a genuine books of the Holy Scripture called the sacred canon or general rule or moral and religious duty given by inspiration. Okay. That definition doesn't help most of us. What is canon? Canon, <clears throat> in a colloquial sense, excuse me, colloquial meaning table, tabletop, you know, kitchen tabletop language. It's the books of the Bible that everybody can agree on were inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God. That, that represents the true word of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. You say, well, yeah, Joe, but not all the Bibles have the same books. Exactly. And we're going to go over a little bit of that here in the next few minutes. What was excluded? Why is excluded? What's included? What isn't included? Et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. Essentially, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are accepted by everybody and have been for a long time. I'm going to start right now and tell you we are not going to, in this class, I'm not going to go over a step-by-step, -step, how did you get there? We're not going to do that today. That I'm would be a class you. all on itself. I'm going to correct you. Go ahead. Not everybody. The Jews do not accept the Brit Hadashah. Yeah, they don't the accept Testament. the New Testament. You're right. You're right. So most everybody. Cannon make big noise. <clears throat> I need Natasha to come on here and say, bless Aaron's little heart. <laughs> Because it means something different when it comes with a southern woman. Bless Aaron's little heart. There we go. <laughs> Aaron, that's a warning, brother. <laughs> All right. So it's the, the, the 66 books that all Christians or new covenant believers will agree on. How about that? <laughs> but there are others. And we're going to get to them. But that's basically what we mean by canon, folks. And in both cases, canon comes from the Hebrew word, I don't know, kana, and the Greek word canon. Both signify a reed or a measuring stick. 
they mean basically it's a rule. It's a guideline. It's uh, guardrails to keep you on the narrow path. Uh, religious uh, uh, wisdom book, teachings. I also liked this one. Definition of canonicity is a biblical description. It's the sacred writings kept in the tabernacle, Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26, and later in the temple, 2 Kings 22, 8. It's the Holy Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.15. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.15, it is talking only about the Tanakh, because at that time, the New Testament had not been written. It's the literal, literal meaning canon means a rod, rule, or a standard. Formal definition, the canon is those writings considered the rule or standard for Christian doctrine and practice. Now, before I got interrupted by Aaron... I was about to tell you, we are not going to go into the details of how the modern canon was established, who did what, when, where, why. That would be a class all in and of itself, and we will get to that, probably as part of our Bible 101 class series here, because it's important. But I'm going to tell you right now, I am not all that sympathetic with these people who scream up and down that Constantine destroyed the faith, corrupted it. Probably, yes. Destroyed it? No. I'm not one of those ones that's going to scream up and down and tell you the Holy Roman Catholic Church is through and through evil. Is it apostate? Yes. I can prove that using the Bible itself. Is everybody who's a Catholic lost? I don't think so. Because I can grab a Catholic Bible and find exactly what I need to find my salvation and start repenting in, in working toward the kingdom and seeking the kingdom of Yahweh. In other words, I can still find the gospel in the Catholic Bible. It's still there. So I'm not one of these ones who's going to start wars with other believers. I will tell you, if you're Catholic, that religion is apostate. It's like being in Samaria in the second temple times, you know, when Yeshua, Jesus is telling the Samaritan, Samaritan woman at the well, you don't know who you worship or what. Well, she thought she was worshiping Yahweh and she's waiting for the Messiah of the Bible. So she thought she had it right. But the Samaritan religion was apostate. Apostate means you've strayed from the proper path. You might still know where you think you're going and how to get there, but you've strayed from the path to get there. That's an apostasy. Heresy is teaching people to go the wrong way, leading them off the path. In, in colloquial terms, you know, figures of speech, common language here. But we're not going to have that fight over how we got to the canon today. I'm just going to let you know that it, 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 I, in my understanding, in my belief, it has been guided by the Holy Spirit the entire way. And we'll see why in a minute. So how did we get the canon then? Well, first of all, let's just tackle the big issue that everybody's going to argue with. What is the Apocrypha? This is the center point of this big argument. What books were excluded and what books, why were they excluded, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Apocrypha. This is, the, this is the, where the crux of the argument is on most of this stuff. Th this definition is big and long, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you today, but this is from Bible Gateway. And the Apocrypha, uh, technically... It's, uh, it's applied technically to the relationship of certain books to the Hebrew canon. In general, it constitutes the excess of the 70 over the Hebrew scriptures. That's the Septuagint 70. 
with the material concern being written during the last two centuries. Okay. The concept of the apocrypha, or the word apocrypha, was used originally as a literary term with regards to books which were unsuitable for public reading because of their esoteric content. It was felt that secret doctrines which they enshrined would lose their authority if they were profaned by the gaze of the common people, an attitude particularly evidenced among the Greek Gnostics after AD 70. And it fell into disfavor in Judaism. Let me stop right here. The Apocrypha, one of the dangers of it, before Christ came in the flesh. This is where you find the Kabbalah. That's Jewish mysticism, secret knowledge. That's what Apocrypha is referring to, hidden or secret knowledge, knowledge that's not meant for the masses. Don't give it to the rubes and the sheep. They don't know what to do with it. This is for us smart people. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of the Apocrypha has been excluded by the Protestant uh, denominations. You have to remember that Protestants come out of the Reformation. Reformation, yeah, they were trying to reform the faith, get back to its original roots in the book of Acts. They wanted to break away from the bad teachings of the Catholic Church. So they did exactly, the, the, the Protestant movement is the start of what today is being continued as the Hebrew Roots movement. But just as in the Hebrew Roots movement today didn't do it correctly and went too far, the Protestants didn't go far enough. So they didn't completely get themselves back to their, to their original origins of the faith. But they did recognize bad teachings and some things in the Catholic Bible that probably shouldn't be there. And I agree with those decisions because I haven't read all the Apocrypha. Charlie has. Um, let's ask him to pop himself on here for a few minutes. Charlie's read a lot of the Apocrypha. Yes. We have problems with the Apocrypha directly contradicting things like history and the 66 books of canon, don't we? Oh, yes. Yes. So in, in the Greek mindset, if it's a direct contradiction, it couldn't be the word of God, could it? From, yeah, from a Greek From a Greek mindset. Right. Yes. Now, in a Hebrew mindset, they might accept it because they're looking for general teachings. And if yes. if one story doesn't line up perfectly with another, they really don't care about that. And that's what I found in the Apocrypha is, is there's some things in there that could add a little flavor to your understanding of what we see in the, in the canon scriptures. But like you said, there are places in the Apocrypha that, there are wild contradictions to what we know is, is correct. So I would not recommend someone that's not well-grounded in their faith to read the Apocrypha. That's what Dip by DDD just said. One <laughs> needs to be go. truly grounded Thank in canon before Dip, reading the Apocrypha. Dip, you lesson plan. Good job. Yes. Now, so, <clears throat> so yeah. Understand that the Bible tells you to read several of the Apocrypha, Apocryphal books for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, but not for Scripture. Oh, right, right. They like Jasher and Jubilees? Yes. It mentions those in the scripture, but it never calls them scripture. The Bible itself never says they're scripture. Right, right. Yeah, it references them. And like we were discussing just before the show, Maccabees. Maccabees to me is is borderline whether it should have been included or yes. not. Yes, it's in, it's in several. You know, we'll get to that in a minute. Whether it's inspired or not, that's, you know, to be debated, but historically it has some very significant things in it that that we should know about uh, yes. that helps to complete 
you know, our understanding of things. So, you know, that's why it's kind of borderline for me. But but we need to before you go into the apocrypha, folks, you need to be grounded. Yes. Um, I got a friend of ours. He was two years in the faith before he got lost in the apocrypha and it led him down some roads. He still hasn't found his way back from. Well, I, I, I know an individual that is, I, I think that's the reason that he's going down the path he's going is that he got into the apocrypha and stuff like that. Yeah, I was and got him straight off the path. Nope. Uh, because it can happen. Well, know? Yahweh had me 15 years hard yeah. studying just the 66 books of canon right. before he let me start looking at the Apocrypha. Yeah. Now, it is an important, like Charlie was saying, it's an important thing. Your Apocrypha is referenced in your New Testament. Mm -hmm. Several books. Yes. And you will find in your show notes today, you'll, you'll, Dr. Heiser, I don't think I put it in this lesson. We're going to deal with it when we're going to do a lesson just on the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. Yeah. Just on them. Dr. Heiser's got an excellent video on this, Michael Heiser. And he says the Apocrypha is in the mind of the apostles, but they never directly quote it ever. But something you also Jesus and the apostles be... don't quote the, the Apocrypha, but they, they accept some of the ideas. Right. In it. But some of the things you have to be very careful with the Apocrypha is some of what we have is apocryphal or pseudepigraphal uh, documents today may not have been those they, that they had yeah. at that time because that's another reason that the apocrypha was not included in the canon is many of those we do not have you know manuscripts that can be you know positively sourced and identified right. of whether they were from that period of time or if they were later creations and such so that that's one of the things you have to be cognizant of as well because they may be pseudepigraphal that were done at a later date yeah we'll define that word for you here in a yeah, minute folks. yeah but the big thing to remember here the key point for most of us to remember is that when the apocrypha is removed from the scripture what you have left the 66 books that most of us in the protestant movement think of that is solid scripture those 66 books do not contradict each other Okay, and the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, has approved of this. The Protestant movement, ha you have to look at it as spirit-led. Otherwise, it shouldn't have happened. It would be a heresy. But we know, we can look at history, and we know that the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church is apostate. It's strayed from the way, and that's what the Protestants were trying to do. And this is why they removed the Apocrypha. Okay, so... It's there for, for knowledge and understanding and background, but it is not scripture because it contradicts solid scripture. And remember, scripture itself tells us scripture can't be broken. So as soon as you add something to it that contradicts it, even in the Hebrew mindset now, you have problematic issues. Yeah, the, the, the Tanakh that we have. Old Testament Tanakh, yeah. The, what would happen is a prophet would write a scroll and it would be in the archives of the leading authorities, the Sanhedrin or whatever it, it, at the time. They would not accept that until they could validate that prophet as being a prophet and making sure that the things he said came to pass and all those things. You know, there are ways to test prophets. It's written yes. in the Torah on how to test prophets. And they would take that literally and they would, do that before they would accept that as part of their, you know, canon. And that's how we got the Tanakh. And the New Testament was done kind of in a 
similar way, but with, you know, the, the Christian uh, yes. councils. Your Old Testament canon, the ones that the Orthodox Jews accept today, it was finalized right before the prophet era closed. You had the intertestimonial period, that little three or 400 year period before Jesus shows up, before Yeshua shows up. The, the oldest three prophets, they're minor prophets, all of them, but the last three prophets were involved in, in studying everything and sealing it up and saying, this is canon. So according to the Orthodox Jewish tradition, the Tanakh was sealed by known established prophets, meaning that they would have been inspired under the, ins the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we have every reason in the world to believe that the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament that we have, that's solid canon. Solid. So, and then what they accepted in the New Testament, the canon you get from the New Testament, there were a lot of restrictions put on it. It has to agree with the old. And the, the Apocrypha is never once quoted by any of the apostles or Jesus, which is one of the biggest reasons it was excluded. But we also have something else here that real quick before we keep moving on, Dip by DDT says some of this is agnostic too, um, which means Gnostic there, Dip, drop the A off. And yes, you're right. The Gnosticism is the Christian equivalent of Kabbalah. Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's mystical. Just think of that as magical Christianity. Gnosticism is magic Christianity and Kabbalah is magic Judaism. And both of them are big and no-nos. Thanks, Charlie. We'll get ourselves going here again. All right. Divine inspiration. What do we mean by that? Well, Basically, you're under the influence of Yahweh directly or his Holy Spirit. But now this is from Chabad. This, this is in your homework. You'll find a link to this. This is a Jewish site. And pretty much what it'll help you do is it'll teach you about the Old Testament, the Tanakh, which is an, a Tanakh is an abbreviation for the prophets, the writings, the history, the poets, etc. It's an abbreviation. But according to this, it says the 24 books of the Bible, the Tanakh, were canonized by Anasia Knesset uh, Hegadalo, uh, men of the great assembly, which included some of the greatest Jewish scholars and leaders of the time, such as Ezra the scribe, even the latest of the prophets, namely Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. With the death of these prophets, the age of prophecy came to an end. Any later works are not considered divinely inspired and are therefore not included in the 24 books of the Holy Scriptures. While none of the books of the Apocrypha are considered to be divinely inspired and are therefore not included in Jewish scripture, the question of whether they have any value from a Jewish perspective is a bit more nuanced. And the rest of that article continues from that point. But it's basically what Charlie and I were just explaining to you. Here is the basic reason. The, 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 this is, it's oversimplified, but essential, and it's a little harsh in my language, in my view, but this is a meme I found that Help me out, get the things done quickly today. The Apocrypha is heretical. Well, yes and no, but for the most point, most part, essentially in the in basic sense, yes, because it teaches things that'll lead you astray. It promotes necromancy, purgatory, and works-based salvation. Yes, that's actually in some of the, some of the uh, Apocrypha. Even more, it contains historical blunders, contradictions, and reads like a legend. The apocryphal books were written during the silent years of the of the no living prophets. That's the intertestimonial period. Jesus never quoted from it. The New Testament never cites it. Jews in the early church rejected it. The apocrypha is uninspired and should be excluded from the Holy Bible. All right. Some of it is in the Septuagint, which is a Jewish Old Testament. 
We will get to the Septuagint in a little bit here. But this is something I told you we would look at. Who accepts the Apocrypha? Uh, this is Craig Avon's non-canonical writings in the New Testament interpretation. You know, I don't want to take a credit from anybody or, you know, I know I'm borrowing their, their work, but they put it up publicly. So all credit to them. Roman Catholics, they accept Tobit, Judith, editions of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Barak, Letters of Jeremiah, Song of the Three, and some of these others for Second Maccabees. You see the Greek Orthodox accepts a few more of them. Russian Orthodox, you know, they accept a few, the Coptics. None of this is settled. And this is one of the problems we're going to run into. And we might need to just jump ourselves back and pop Charlie in here again here for a minute, catching him by surprise. I want you to understand something real quick. Canon has never, ever actually been settled, even within the Jewish church. Oh, no. You've done some study. There were several different collections of scripture in the time of Jesus, too, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, there were different different sects that have and like with the Essenes and the yeah, Pharisees the had different the Sadducees. Uh, yes, Sadducees and Pharisees were. Nobody had, has had ever agreed different. on any of this. No, no, no. This is, you know, canon. <laughs> canon it depends upon your your sect or denomination of what you consider to be holy. Which is what we were just looking at in that right, picture. Exactly. Different. That's that's what different sections. And by the way, those. Those four sections, what most people don't realize is there used to be five Catholic churches. Catholic just means global. Yeah. The Roman Catholic Church took over and beat down the other four. Well, you know, the Coptic Church of, of Egypt, and then you had the Church of Judea and, and Antioch, and you had different, you know, Byzantine and the East and all. You had different. Some of those, this is what it is. It's vestiges of these churches, which if you want to look into that, folks, you'll find that a lot of the, the older Catholic churches, the Eastern and all, they kept the Sabbath. They kept Saturday. They, they, they retained it. They, it was hundreds of years later until they switched to Sunday. And then that was because of further Catholic expansion by people like Napoleon, et cetera. But the canon, the point that I wanted to bring Charlie in here is like he was telling you, you didn't hear it from me. You heard it from him. Nobody's ever agreed on this. But if you're Christian, we can all agree on the, the New Testament that's in the 66 book canon. And if you're Jewish, you'll agree on the Old Testament that's in the 66 book. A lot of this is going to cause people trouble. Charlie, did, they shouldn't be all upset thinking that they can't trust their Bible, should they? No, no. This is Holy Spirit work, folks. He'll guide you in all of this. The point here is don't get dogmatic on these things. Start no. understanding that it was... The spirit works through real flesh and blood human beings, which means what God Yahweh is doing is going to be just as messy as everything else us human beings do. Right. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate that. He'll be popped in here again in a moment's notice later on. So Greek Orthodox, that's part of the Eastern Orthodox half of Russian Orthodox as well. Coptic was part of Egypt and everything. It's largely been wiped out by ISIS lately, but there's few vestiges left. That would be down in Egypt and part of Northern Africa. Roman Catholic was the Western Catholic. And then you had the Catholic Church of Judea region and then Antioch, which is Turkey. So we told you we'd get to this. What is the pseudepigrapha and should it be in the Bible? Now, this is where you get to the Da Vinci Code. This stuff is largely garbage not all of it most of it now what is pseudepigrapha again 
this is from Bible Gateway. It is a big old long, and um, we're not going to read it all. This is, it's a name given to a large body of Jewish writings that are not included in either canon of the Old Testament or what is the Protestant referred to as the Apocrypha, written originally in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning a designation, the term pseudopigrapha arises from the fact that many of the writings gathered together under the headings bear the names of famous personalities from the Old Testament certainly did not come from their pens, like Enoch, Moses, Solomon, Isaiah, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Essentially, pseudopigrapha is a way of saying pen name. In the time that they were written, it was an accepted practice to write under the name of somebody else to give what you're writing credibility. We would think of it today as either plagiarism or deceptive. But at the time that a lot of this was written, it was accepted. The problem is when you do this, it's not necessarily inspired. Most of the times it's not. Because if it's inspired, it'll give you your, its, its name. Now, why do I say most of the time? There are, set, like the book of Joshua, we don't know for sure Joshua wrote it. But I'm have no doubt it was inspired. There are several books like that in the Bible in the in the accepted canon that eh, it's got some questionable, um, you know, who who wrote it? We're not sure. But in the case of the pseudepigrapha, like the Book of Enoch, the Book of Enoch was not written by Enoch. In fact, the Book of Enoch it's a collection of books, and we call it the Book of Enoch. But there's First Enoch, Second Enoch, Third and Fourth. And it's kind of like sections that have been stitched together. And it was all written pretty much between the prophets and the time of Jesus. So it's not Enoch. Now, this is where pseudepigrapha and apocrypha get confusing. Apocrypha can also be pseudepigraphic. You know, it can pseudepigrapha, whatever. Yeah, I got myself confused. That stuff, the pen name stuff can also be apocrypha. But not all apocrypha is pseudographica. You know, it's like, you know, it's just one of these things. The pseudographica I want you to worry about, these are the false gospels, gospel of Thomas, gospel of Mary, all this stuff. This stuff comes up late. It's two, three, four hundred years after Christ has died, risen, and ascended. And a lot of it is Gnostic in nature. And this is where the movie, The Da Vinci Code, and the books runs from. They run from that saying, see, the church has left all these out. The church left them out for very good reason. But certain Christian sects still include some of this stuff. The Catholic Church includes a, a couple of the pseudepigrapha books. I would, personally, I reject the, 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 the Christian pseudepigrapha. I would reject it, all of it, every stinking book of it. The Jewish pseudepigrapha, like Enoch and all, there's some value in some of those books. Just like we don't know for sure who wrote all of Ezra. You know, first, second, third, and fourth. We don't know for sure. That could be pseudepigrapha, but it's also apocrypha. And the apocrypha is not useless. The Christian New Testament pseudepigrapha is, in my opinion. And you can see what's happened with it, like with the Da Vinci Code books and everything. This is largely why it was excluded. is because the people who put our canon together knew it was garbage. This is from neverthirsty.org. Pseudepigrapha are not inspired writings. In the case of the New Testament, the Old Testament, it, 
We don't know for sure. I doubt it's inspired. The prophets said it wasn't, but some of it was written after they died. I'm not going to come down with a hammer and tell you, you know, like Enoch's not scripture. Some people think it is. The Ethiopian church still has it in its Bible. I don't know. I would say it's not because it contradicts the teachings in the, in the, the books that we like with the books of Moses, the first five books. Enoch contradicts a lot of what's in there. So I would say Enoch's not scripture, but some people say it is. I don't know. But pseudepigrapha in the New Testament, you know, like Thomas and Mary and all this mess, that is definitely not scripture. It's a group of books that have been rejected because they are not inspired by God. That is the Holy Spirit did not move them to write them. Quotes 2 Peter verse uh, chapter 1, verse 21 here. It says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that's, that's what's true scripture. You got to be moved from God. So as a result, these books are considered to be false and spurious. None of these books are quoted or named in either the Old or New Testament. Neither Jesus nor his disciples quoted from them. The early church fathers did not refer to them as authoritative. Some have claimed that Enoch is quoted in Jude 14 and 15, but a careful evaluation reveals that such a claim is not supported by the facts. Others have claimed that the assumptions of Moses is also quoted in Jude 9. But again, that is not supported by the evidence. Others claim that since 2 Timothy 3.8 refers to Janes and Yambres, it is reference to the book known as Janus and Yambres or Janus and Yambres. But since Janus and Yambres was written sometime in the first to third centuries AD, it is impossible. Okay. Quick note here, though. I agree with this. That's why we put it in the lesson. However, while Enoch is not directly quoted by Jude or Peter or Jesus. The thinking of Enoch is accepted. Peter talks about the spirits being imprisoned in the Tartarus. That's Enochian material. Jude references the same thing. When Paul writes about um, the angels being tempted by a woman's hair, he's got Enochian material in his head. You know, he's telling the, uh, the Carthaginians or whatever, um, no, no, the, the Colossians telling the women to cover their hair. He's got a knocking thinking in his head there. When Jesus talks about Gehana and the lake of fire and hell, that's a knocking thinking. So while it's not quoted, the thinking is accepted. See, this is why this is a difficult subject and I'm spending so much time on it because I know it is a stumbling block in the body of the believers today. It's being used by Gnostics in the church to get you to thinking that you can't trust your Bible. You can. Your Bible was put together by teachers under this inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And by teachers, I mean those called to teach, rabbis. It was put together by people who knew to study this stuff, spent a lot of time on it, did not take this flippantly or ca casually, and wanted to make sure they preserved Yahweh's word as best they could for the people into the future. So they knew how to wrestle with this stuff. They'd read it. They'd studied it. They compared it to scripture. They were very good Barians. And the whole point of this whole thing with the, the I'm spending so much time on the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha is because I know how many people get, ju they just start chasing down after this stuff. And this is a lot, this is, this is a lot of where you're, uh, oh, I can't remember the word for it right now. I got the derogatory word for it in my head, but all right. 
Charlie, I need a little help. The Holy Rollers, um, <laughs> jumping up and down in the aisles oh, and the Pentecostals. Pentecostals. I'm sorry. I forgive me. It's okay. I was one. But a lot of their idea ideas come out of the apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. Not all of it. There's and they see it in the Bible because of the way they're thinking. But a lot of that comes out of this. So be careful with this stuff, folks. That's the whole gist of this, of where we're at with this stuff. Be careful with it. Know about it. Know about it, yes, but be careful with it, please. Well, let me add one thing. Sure. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the uh, Da Vinci Code and things like that. Uh, there are Bible codes within your Bible. Yes, there are. Now, some people will take those too far. Way too far. But they exist. And also, if you look at the the literary format and the way that um, words are used and and things like that, if you look at it from that perspective, it also lends credence to the books that we do have. Yes. Because when you look at them in certain ways, you can see that these things were inspired. These are things that you will find in the writings that no man could have conceived putting all this stuff together for it to come out in the way that it did. Yes. It would have been impossible. This, <clears throat> this is a good point to just stick in here, Charlie, feel free to add in when you want. If you want to study with me, one of the things you're going to find is that I understand this is a very complicated issue. Man has made it complicated. And because we don't pay attention to what we're doing, we just accept too many things on face value in our lives. We don't dig for ourselves. We're not good barians. We don't go test things on our own. Excuse me. We end up accepting things we shouldn't. And it's very easy to get deceived. And a lot of the people who do this, they're well-meaning. But they themselves are not properly trained or they don't have the proper attitude, proper disciplines, and, and or their mindset is not quite up to the task they're setting for themselves. Hopefully I said that politely. Um. I'm not going to be that way. One of the greatest assets I've ever had is that before I had my philosophy training before I converted and actually started to really study and accept and bow to the scriptures. I have brought what I was taught how to test. I have brought that to the scriptures and I have tested this book over and over and over and over again. The, the codes that Charlie's talking about, they're not as complicated as most Bible codes you see. Most Bible codes is they got these big computer logarithms to, you know, like, look, the Bible told me that if you do this code, this letter from this word, and this letter from that word, you put it all together and it foretold 9-11. That crazy wackadoodle stuff? No, out of here, man. The idea that every number in the Bible is going to tell me a whole different Bible, that's Kabbalah out of here, dude. But the numbers one ringing over and over again in scripture and two and the refrain of three and four and five and six, these actually do have connection and they ring from Genesis to Revelation and they always mean the same thing. So when you see a number in the Bible, you know, you have 10 bridesmaids with their lamps. Well, there's another code, the lamp too. The symbology is also part of what Charlie's talking about, the Bible code. 10 is going to tell me, well, this is the perfect number of governance, but it's also the northern tribes. Well, five, let their lamp go out. The lamp is the gospel. It's the message of Yahweh. Five, let their Torah go out. Five didn't. Five and five, Torah, Torah. So five, Torah, lamp out. Five, Torah, lamp lit. Which ones got to go into the wedding supper? The ones who kept the ways of Yahweh, Torah. The ones who didn't were locked out. 
this is what Charlie means by Bible codes. Yeah. And that, Th and this that. is a large part of what he's taught and it rings and it's consistent throughout and it, it is there. And it, it also is there. shows the layers that, you know, the, the stories and the teachings in the Bible many times have multiple layers of understanding yes. as you dig deeper and gain greater understanding. The parables. They are, they are laid out to you and you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew that this meant this as well. So yeah, it, it that's where, you know, you know, because we're talking about this and some people say, well, how do we know this is right? You know, how do yes. we know? Oh my gosh. Like you said, you've got to test it. Years of studying. And when you do that, you start seeing and, you know, that the things that I've understood and, you know, that's why I've been studying Hebrew because I see things in there that, whew, I mean, it, it, when you see that kind of stuff too, it, it buoys your faith in the word you're able to trust it more. Yes. It's like, how do you know it's true? Well, <clears throat> somebody once told me that the parables of Christ, there, there are at least three levels. There's a surface level. Oh, that's a cool, that's a cool little story. Then there's the, then there's a level that most your pastors will teach you. Then if you dig down further, you're going to find out every one of the parables is about the kingdom. Everyone. And how do I know? Well, when I first started understanding, like the story, we got the 10 bridesmaids. Okay, well, th this is just a story of, you know, you got to stay awake. You got to be ready. You got you to be awake and ready. Don't go to sleep so that when he returns the second coming, you're not lost and you get to go, you know, you'll, you won't get caught sleeping. Well, that that is true. That's okay. That That's the milk and bread level. At the meat level, I start understanding that this is the bridesmaid. This is the reference of the second coming, but it's going to bring in a whole story of the the, the supper, the, the Hebrew wedding ceremony. And then I recognize 10. That's the house of Israel, which is what the true gospel is sent to. I'm sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 10 is the number of perfect government, complete government. Five is the number of the Pentateuch, which is thought to be Torah. And it's, the it's you know, you've got five, the lamp goes out. Oh, the lamp is the light of the gospel. Oil is the word that, you know, you, you lost the oil in the lamp. So you weren't giving you. I realize this is all kingdom language. This is all kingdom. And it's, you know, it, if you understand what's going on, the deeper meaning, the people who first heard this parable, the ones who are awake and have ears to hear and eyes to see, would have put all this together and they said, oh, okay, he's really talking about something deep here. And there might still be a level below that that I haven't got to yet because it hasn't been shown me. But as I dig, I start understanding, okay, yeah, I learned about the Hebrew wedding ceremony. Oh, wow, is that big? We got to do a class on. Then I learned about the numbers in scripture and I learned about Torah and I learned about the lost tribes. And then all of a sudden I realized, yes, that parable definitely is about the kingdom. And then I went to the prodigal son. Yep, that's about the kingdom. And, and the vine grower. Yep, that's about the kingdom. And I realized the man who told me that the parables are about, yep, he's right. I tested it myself. But in the process, I had to go look at all the symbology and the codes in the Bible. And it was precept upon precept. And if you don't dig, the Holy Spirit will not reveal this to you. And if you're one of these believers who thinks, I flopped the Bible open, I read this thing, the Holy Spirit told me everything I need to know. It was a spirit, all right. Yeah. I That's seriously question whether or not it was the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit tests you. Okay, he sits back there and he goes, look at this. And when, when you look at something simple and he sits there and he watches. If you keep digging, he, he'll go, okay, okay, oh, look, look at this, and he'll lead you. But if you quit digging, he'll just sit and watch, and he'll wait. 
How do I know I'm right? Scripture says, if you seek me with all your heart, well, yeah, I'm seeking God. It all talks, it means dig in his word. If you seek him in his word, this is one of the reasons we know the scriptures is what it claims to be. No human construction can do this. You cannot do this in the Quran. Trust me, I've read it. It doesn't work. That Well, Joe, you're just not a, uh-uh. You got to read things into the Quran that aren't there. The stuff we're explaining to you right now, Charlie, all of this is right there in the Bible, isn't it? It's there. It's there. And wow. When I, when I dug in and found some of this stuff, I'm like, whoa, I never realized. Yeah, I've handed you a few of those pieces lately. Gosh. And it's a case of you have to immerse yourself in it until the pieces start of the puzzle start clicking in your head. Yeah. See, it's there, folks. Now, we're coming up on the break, and we're going to give you a six-minute break today. When we come back, we're going to start digging into the canon. What is it? How do, you know? What is it really? But the first hour was to deal with the pseudepigrapha and, and the um, apocrypha and basically the idea of how we got there. Because there's a lot, man. There's a hatred for the Catholic Church in the body. There's anti-Semitism in the body. All of that's got nothing to do with the new covenant because the new covenant belongs to both. Go read Jeremiah. It's for both the house of Judah and the house of Israel. It's both. Jesus said, I came to the Jew first, you know, my house first. I came to my home first, Judah, and then to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what he's talking about there. There's more code right there. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. What he's telling you is Judah wouldn't accept me. See, it, it, the deeper meaning when you understand what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about there. He's saying Judah wouldn't accept me. The Jews are going to reject me. That's what he's talking about. But he came to them first. But at the same time, a prophet isn't accepted in his hometown. Because everybody knows you. Oh, you can't be a prophet. You're just Joe. You know, I know you. I know your parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, isn't that Yeshua, the, you know, the carpenter's son? So there was so little faith in that town because nobody believed in him that he, he could only do a few healings. This is all what's going on there, folks. And so many people will latch onto a piece of it, and that's where they stop. And that, once you stop, your spiritual growth has arrested. You're done. You're stuck until you get moving again. And you are the one who, the scripture tells you this is a relationship. You have to work with the Holy Spirit to get this. If you stop and you get comfortable stopped, he won't necessarily push you to keep going. Sometimes, yes, but I've seen most believers, he'll let you sit there because you got what you wanted, okay. And it may be enough to get yourself in the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. But you, it's the same thing as putting your talents under the rock and leaving them there. You're probably going to get some lashes for this. Yeah, you you tend to start moving backwards instead of uh, yeah. staying stationary. And you start putting stumbling blocks in the way of other believers growing. And scripture does tell you not to do that. You know, and th this is where most heresies in most different denominations come from is people who got stuck. They found a pet piece of scripture and they kept on going with just that. They don't grow through the rest of it. I can't do that. It, it, he made me restless. I keep going Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, back and forth. You know, like Daniel says, people will run to and fro. Yeah, Joe, that means they're going from Paris to New York and all that. No, Daniel could care less about that to and throw through the word anything else before we go to break no i think we're uh, doing pretty good so far all right six minutes why charlie dances around in a circle to Havana yeah. and 
We'll see you in six. And we will start talking about canon and how to study it and which translations you should be looking at, which ones you need to stay away from, and some tools that you have available to you to help you study. Yes. We'll be back.
I wish I could Oops. show you Charlie dancing around and directing them. <laughs> All right, real quick before we get going again. I was talking to Charlie during a break. We got a quick question for you. We both realize that we've studied this stuff a lot. So sometimes we might think we're being clear in what we're explaining when we're not. So if if you if there's anything about the pseudepigrapha and apocrypha that we, that you didn't understand, please post a question so Charlie can handle it for you. Um, I, I realize that what he and I thought, yeah, we handled that well. It might not have been so well in your ears. Sure. You know, we're aware of the fact that we've been in this for years. This material, we've we've studied it for a long time. So, and we're aware of it and we we're familiar with it and familiarity breeds contempt. So if we did something that confused you, said something confused you, we missed something, please comment or um, send us an email, you know, private. If you don't want to do that publicly, let us help, man. Don't, don't let us leave you more confused or unanswered questions. Yeah. Cause this is something that unfortunately most believers don't dig into, you know, they, they, some people don't even know where the Bible came from. I mean, they they accept it, you know, which is good. I mean, it, it's not a bad thing, but it helps you if you understand where it came from and how it came to be so that you understand that there are, you know, understand that there is an apocrypha and there's the pseudopigraphal. Um, and why they were excluded so you don't think you were lied to. Yeah, so that you understand and are aware that they're there. I mean, the reason I wrote, or read most of the apocryphal writings is I wanted to know what was in there so that if someone was coming towards me with some of these ideas, I know where they came from so that I can address them properly. Yes. So, I mean, that, that's something I don't encourage you to do. Like we said, don't, don't get into that stuff. Till yeah. You're like well, Dip said, well grounded. get grounded in your Bible before you yeah. do that. But and until then, that time, know that they're there and why they're not in your yes. Bible. All right. Okay. We're good to go, Charlie. Continue Thank you, on. sir. Yep. Right. Bring us questions. Yep. Got questions? Let us know. Whoop, Charlie bounced me around there. There we go. Biblical canon. This is where we left off. All right. Now, this is just a picture of, I told you we would look at this, the Greek Septuagint. And you don't have to blow this up or worry about it if you don't want to. It's just to let you know that even in the English, we have different canons. Okay. The Latin Vulgate, which was the Latin, the Septuagint's Greek Bible, Latin Vulgate is the Latin Bible, the Catholic Bible, German Luther, which is pretty much now you're getting into the start of the Protestant Bible, then the English, which is the King James and the worldwide, most of their Bibles. So this is where we've settled. Now, here's the thing where most people want to go. Can I trust my Bible? Oh, basics first. Things I would expect from the word of God. If he's really God, if he is, you know, El Elyon, the most high God, I would expect his word to be consistent and coherent throughout from start to bit finish. I'm going to expect it to be testable. And I'm going to expect it to be preserved over time, intact, not changing. Do we have all of these things in the Bible today? Yes. Oh, yes, we do. Yes. The current canon the 66 basic books of the Protestant Bible is, is consistent in its teaching over some 1,500, 1,600 years of writing. It's coherent in its themes. If you take it on its own terms, it does not contradict itself. It doesn't. I know a lot of skeptics and scoffers will say, yeah, look, here's, oh, no, it doesn't. They don't understand it in its own terms. And by that, I mean the linguistics and the culture 
and the theological themes. Has it been, has it been faith, faithfully preserved across time and translation? Yes, it has. The Dead Sea Scrolls. We all heard about them pretty much, right? Well, well what the heck does it mean? This is from Logos.com. Dr. Michael Heiser worked with them. They're in Jacksonville, Florida. Why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important? The Dead Sea Scrolls preserve, by far, our oldest copies of biblical manuscripts. The text tradition preserved in the medieval Masoretic text is well attested to in the ancient biblical manuscripts from Qumran, demonstrated quite forcefully that the faithful transmission of the texts over the centuries. In other words, they have not been altered. But these scrolls also attest to a variety of text traditions that existed during the Second Temple period. In other words, the text tradition preserved in the, um, the Masoretic texts, which is the ones that your King James Bible was made from, they existed alongside other text traditions of Qumran. This is what we were talking about in the first hour, is there's different, different compilations, different ways of writing the scriptures. While the biblical scrolls from Qumran do confirm the reliability of the biblical text that we have today, the other text traditions with their variant readings also present wonderful, exciting challenges as we seek to better understand the text of scripture. Now, Logos is a very scholarly group of, of believers. I mean, they're, they're my type of folks. They will get down in the nitty gritty. You know, um, I don't know how much of it Charlie has watched, but I know that another one of your classmates, um, Ray, sometimes watches Dr. Michael Heiser get into the nitty gritty of Hebrew. And oh my God, right over the top of my head in a heartbeat with what they're discussing. Um, but I mean, gets down, not into the weeds, man. Heiser will dig up the roots of the Hebrew language. You know, gets down below the surface of the ground. I can't do that. Not with Hebrew. But that's what you're dealing with with the Glogos people. So when they say that the Dead Sea Scrolls are fascinating, that's because they're scripture geeks. They're all into this and in, in the culture and the times and everything. For you and I, all you need to know is the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us that the scriptures we have today are the ones they had yesterday and the day before. So is the Bible true? Ha ha ha. The Bible is the only testable religion. What? You can't test it. It's religion. Yes, you can test it. For one thing, there's a video in your homework. If you go to your homework, let me pop you over here real quick. We'll do this. If we go to our homework here, the um, sharing the screen here real quick, the road to concord.com. This is all the little clicks and links. And, and this, this page here, I'm going to update it over time. So you might want to, you might want to bookmark this page because it's going to give you all the helpful things that I use on a day-to-day -day basis. But this is how we got the old Testament. That's Dr. Michael Heiser there. Should you read all those extra books? That's talking about the Apocrypha. He gives you a little reference on that. But down here, Christianity is the most testable religion. Oh, you want to watch that little two and a half minute video. Because what it's going to remind you of is that most every religion on earth came from a vision or a dream or somebody had had bad bratwurst. And then they started telling everybody else about it. And people had to believe it just based on them. You can't test that because it's all based on that person's dream or vision. Everything from the Bible came from visible means, things that were done publicly. 
Well, nobody was there when Moses saw the burning bush. No, but they were all there when he went up against Pharaoh and caused the 10 plagues. And they were all there when the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. And it was attested to that they were all out in the desert. You'll find these things in what we would think of as secular writings. The, the peoples around this recorded it was going on too. The Bible was very public. The crucifixion was very public. The resurrection, he showed himself to many people. The Bible says hundreds of people saw him. One of the things that uh, helps me to understand the Bible is true is it includes the good, the bad, and, and the, the ugly. ugly. Mm -hmm. It does not delineate. It shows everything in, in graphic detail sometimes. I mean, it, some of this stuff's hard to read. Yes, the conquest. Wipe them but, all out. But, but if you look at it through spiritual eyes, you, you see that those things are important to know so that you know what the evil is out there so that you can combat it. You have to understand that the Bible is a battle. It's a book of war. The war is between Yahweh, God, and Satan and the forces of Satan, Hasatan, Satan, the, the accuser. Yeah, and you were talking earlier about contradictions in the Bible. They're not there. When you find a contradiction in the Bible, dig deeper. Because that means there's something, something you don't understand. Yes. And I'm really good with that. Um, I dig. It, contradictions just pop in my head. It's, if I read them, I'll remember them. And it, it, the Bible's a big, long book. But if I'm reading it, and I'm at the last page of Genesis, I mean of Revelation rather, and I, I run into something that I think is a contradiction with the first page of Genesis, the way I'm made, it'll come back up into my mind. It, it's, it's my OCD. It'll bug me. And it's one of the reasons that I have constantly st stuck on these things. And it's why, for the most part, I have some missing pieces in the puzzle, but the, the, the overall picture of Scripture just sits well in my head because I've worked out most of the contradictions. Yes, JMW supporter and archaeology um, keeps moving, proving it also. Yes, archaeology oh proves this to us over and over and over and over again. If you want to look at uh, some good movies and archaeology, uh, go look for Patterns of Evidence. Yes, the Patterns of Evidence by Tim videos. Mahoney. Yes. He's got a series of videos that He's are done. very well done because they show both sides of the issue and it, it, it's really, really effective. He's another one so. that I love because he's he's speaking the language of a trained thinker. Yes. He gives both sides of the argument. In fact, that's one of his websites, the thinker. <laughs> yep. He gives both sides of the argument and the evidence from both. Yeah. So cool beans. All right. What about those accusations, contradictions in the Bible? We've already addressed some of those. Most of the time you don't understand something. About the claims that the Bible, you know, there's false claims in the Bible. Again, not true. Um, it used to be for years, the Bible lies about the Hittites. Then they found the Hittites. The Bible lies about being in Egypt at this time, and there were no camels there. Then they found out that, yeah, there were camels there, and that the, they were actually in Egypt a lot earlier than what the Egyptologists say they were. Patterns of evidence has proven that. No, 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 no. They have never, mis they have never proven the Bible wrong about anything. The Bible has led the archaeologists to where to find things, and they found it exactly where they were looking. About mistakes in the Bible. Book of Genesis is a mistake. Man, what in the world wasn't made that way? Genesis is not about how the universe was created. 
The creation story in Genesis is a polemic. It's an attack on the gods of Egypt. Well, how do you know that, Joe? Have you read Job in the Psalms? Job and the Psalms have an entirely different creation story. They're talking more about how it was done there. You have to, un like I said, the Bible has to be understood on its terms. Say, so what about the discrepancies across the different copies of the Bible? Yeah, let's talk about that one. Of all those discrepancies, almost every one of them has been recounted to one of two things. It's either a typo, the scribe spelt the word differently in his region of the world than they did in the one he's copying from, or they put in a different word for that. So like if I say Tyree in one place, they might say Spain in another, or, or uh, the Assyria, there's, a, there's an I word for the Spanish peninsula. They're all the same thing. They mean the exact same location. But what they're talking about, it's in different regions of, of the ancient Mediterranean world. So they use the word that their people would know and understand. That accounts for about 90% of the scribal errors that are supposed to have accounted in the Bible. The others are things like where the Bible has been redacted, updated. So like if you run across certain parts of the Old Testament and it'll say, well, the city of whatever. And you know, like, well, in that time that Moses was writing, that city had a different name. Yeah, that's because a scribe updated it for the people of their time. That does not change the meaning of the word. Remember what I told you about language? Because I give you the new name, it's the same city. You want a good case of this? Melchizedek, or however you want to say his name? The king of Salem. Y'all do understand that Salem's Jerusalem, right? Same city, two different names. So if somebody were to go back there and say, well, Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem. Oh, no, he wasn't. He was Salem. We're talking about the same city, folks. So you got to do a little studying. So when you get into all of this, that's the sum total of all your supposed discrepancies in the Bible. That accounts for every one of them. Yes, ma'am. Wait, he wasn't the king of Salem, Massachusetts? No. Are you sure? Charlie, would you take care of the peanut gallery for me? I swear what? you let a female into your Bible study and see what happens, folks. Paul, Paul, where are you, Paul? <laughs> She knows I'm kidding with her. She knows. So you guys need to know too, because Natasha knows I'm teasing. Heck, Natasha does our readings for us in our congregation. So we value our ladies because scripture tells us to, because we also do value them, even if scripture didn't tell us to. Anyway, you know, before I get myself in more trouble than I'm already in, I will probably pay a price for this from BB Gumi. Natasha and several others before the day is over. <sighs> Different Bible translations. <laughs> now the fun begins. For those of you who have gentle toes, get your steel-toed boots on now while you still have time. <laughs> Looks like I'm rubbing off on Natasha. Bless her little. <laughs> Aaron's giving Natasha a hard time in the comment section, folks. Here's just a few of your Bible translations. King James Version, American Standard Version, Common English, Amplified, Complete Jewish, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Just stick a pin in that for a moment. Let's talk about the Septuagint. <laughs> I told you we'd get back to this. This is the Greek Bible. Y'all do or don't, I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. How many of y'all realize that most of the time, 
the large majority of the time, like 60 or 70 percent of the time, when Jesus or the apostles quote the Bible, the Old Testament in the, in the New, you know, in the Gospels and, and in the writings of Paul and everything, when they're quoting the Bible, the Old Testament is what they're quoting. They're quoting the Septuagint. What? Yes. But I thought the Septuagint was written in Greek. It is. But but it was written in Hebrew, wasn't it? Yes. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Then it was translated to Greek. Because what happened is, a little history story for you folks, a large part of Jews were living outside of the area of Judea for generations, and they become what's called Hellenized. They became Greek. They started speaking Greek, and they no longer spoke or read Hebrew. So they wanted a copy of the Hebrew texts in Greek, and they met. And the story goes that they met in Alexandria, 70 Hebrew rabbis, each locked themselves away in their own room, translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And when they were all done, they came together, and lo and behold, all 70 of them had translated it identically the same. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's the story. If the Holy Spirit's at work, it might very well be true. But that was the start of the Septuagint. And then several decades later, they finished translating the rest of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, into Greek. This is very valuable to us for many reasons. But the biggest thing here is it tells us many things. There's an argument. The, 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 the Jesus and the apostles spoke Aramaic. Yes, they did. The Bibles tell us they did. Well, they didn't read Greek. They in did Greek. Greek yeah, and there you go. They were multilingual. Because some of the things that we have Jesus recorded as saying had to have been in Hebrew. Because it's the only way it makes sense in the Gospels. And when he reads that time, you know, he says he's reading from Isaiah. And he says, I tell you today and this day, whatever, and you're seeing, hearing, whatever, this passage has been fulfilled. He's reading from the Septuagint right there. So I guess he could read Greek, which means he probably spoke it. Because Greek was a major language in, in and around Nazareth and in, in Galilee, because that was a crossroads of the ancient time right there, which would have meant that Greek would have been the language of commerce. And he was a carpenter. Commerce. So these big arguments that people get into over which language he spoke, the answer is yes. But the Septuagint also tells us how they used and understood the Greek words for the New Testament as well. It acts as a translator. We can see in the, the old to the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where they're thinking. And then you can take the Septuagint and help triangulate your thinking and translation of the Greek New Testament. The Septuagint is our bridge. It's the Rosetta Stone for it the is New the, Testament. Yeah, great way to put it, Charlie. See, he's more than just a pretty face. <laughs> so the Septuagint is very important to us, folks. Very important to us. And is basically here, it means the Septuagint 70, LXX. That's the 70, meaning the 70 people who did the first start of the translation. It uh, first translation of any part of the Bible from Hebrew. The Old Testament was trans translated into New Testament Koinine Greek or Koining Greek. It's, it's, it's a non-classical form of Greek. It's spoken Greek. It was the language of the world at that time. It was done around the 3rd century B.C., 285 B.C., before Christ. And they tell you about the 70 Jews and many Old Testament quotations in the New Testament come from the Septuagint. They are not identical. Okay, they're very close, but they're not identical. And this will also teach you that in some cases, 
A word-for-word translation is not necessary. The Holy Spirit's happy with the concept for concept. Okay? That's important. It teaches us. So which Bible translation is best for me? This is an important question because this does matter depending on where you are at in your studies. Okay, first things first. All translations are interpretations. What? Yes. All translations are interpretations. A translation is not necessarily inspired. Matters of concern. Subject. When you're translating it, you got to look at the subject that's being discussed. And the purpose. What's the purpose of the author? What language are you using? Not just is it Hebrew or Greek, but are we apocalyptic? Are we poetic? Or is it just history language? You know, are we allegorical, polemical? What culture is writing this thing? What's the context? Because that's not necessarily the context of, of the way it's being used can tell you a lot. Are there parallels in scripture that'll help me properly decipher this? You know, like what we were talking about early with the, earlier with the, the ten bridesmaids, ten virgins. There are parallels in scripture that helped us with that way we were explaining that to you. Five being Torah, ten being the perfect law and the lost tribes, the lamp being, you know, the reflection of a church and the oil being the word of God that reflects the church and all this other stuff. And then there's two sets, right? Five and five, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. The house of Israel's let its Torah go out. Folks, there are parallels that help you understand all of this stuff. Clay Taylor on the board, all religious texts are translated to fit the narratives. Mm, yeah, but be careful with how you define narrative there, Clay. If yeah. your narrative is to brightly transmit the word of God, yeah. But you have to you have to be cognizant that different translations have different biases. Yes. So you do have to be cognizant of that. Yeah. No, he 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 made a correct so, statement. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah that's, and we're going to address that in a few yeah. minutes. Um, all I said was be careful of how you're transmitting narrative there. Um, don't trample the foot of the Holy Spirit there. Biblical translations. All right. Two approaches mainly, primarily. The two main philosophies behind translating the Bible range on a continuum is word for word. That's adhering to the word for word and the structure of the original language without sacrificing clarity. Then you have thought for thought. This prioritizes the clarity and understanding of the meaning of the original language without sacrificing accuracy. This is kind of like engineering here, folks. The more you focus on the word for word, the quicker you lose the original meaning. The more you think on the thought for thought, the quicker you lose the original words. All of these are give and takes. And then it tells you a little bit over here on the right. But what's important down here on the bottom is the graph. Your inner linear is going to be the most specific word for word. But then over there on the right, the message and the voice, you've gone so far to the right that those probably are not scripture anymore. Those are commentaries. And we'll get to this in just a minute. Personally, I study out of an NASB and the ESV. You see, those are very far to the left. My primary Bible is an NASB. But you'll find the interlinear open all the time. And when I just read to read, I read out of the Amplified Bible, which is right behind the NASB. It's AMP, Amplified. And we'll get to those in more detail here in just a second. Thought and intents of the heart. Hebrews 
this is what an amplified Bible looks like. It's how it reads. It says, for the word that God speaks is alive and full of power. In brackets, they're going to expand on the meaning there. It says, making it active, making the word active, operative, energizing, and effective. Explains to you what it means by to be full of power. It says, it is sharper than any two-edged sword penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, meaning soul, the Ruach, and the immortal spirit. And they put immortal in there for you to help explain it. And the joints and marrow, meaning the deepest parts of your, our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purpose of the heart. This is Hebrews 4.12. If I am just reading my Bible, I read an amplified Bible because it saves me most of the time from having to pull out my, uh, my interlinear Bible and look up the Greek or the Hebrew. And it also, it reads well enough that it doesn't, it doesn't cause a lot of herky-jerky reading. When somebody is brand new to the faith, but they're very interested in wanting to understand the scriptures as best they can from the beginning, I tell them to read an Amplified Bible. Because it's a very good medium between the original text and the original understanding. It, it, it bridges the gap between thought for thought and word for word. This is a very useful tool, even for the most studied scholar. Then there's the interlinear Bible. This is here is off of Bible Hub. It's just a picture. It shows you what it's like. If you're, if you're on a computer, especially a, a sit-down-at-the-desk computer, all of those things in blue are linked. So this is Greek, so you can read um, left to right. But if this was Hebrew, if you were in the Old Testament, you'd have to be reading right to left. But it'll tell you, like, you know, it says, therefore, Pilate, Pilatos, and then 4091, that's the Strong's Concordance number. You click on that, it'll give you the definitions and everywhere it's used. E is the concordance. It'll tell you everywhere it's used in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And then it'll tell you parts of the, of the grammar and everything. This is a very useful tool online for those who want to dig into the original language. Now, this is where you're starting to get more advanced in your scripture studies. But it's even useful for those who are first starting out. But it, it, I don't read Greek or Hebrew. Charlie studies just out of a Hebrew Bible because he reads it better than I do, a lot better than I ever will. But still, he and I both live in interlinear Bibles and lexicons, looking up the original meaning of the word. And um, quick rabbit, let's um, pop this out of here and pop Charlie on real quick. I was, this is a quick rabbit to explain what we mean by this. He and I, we wear tzitzit. It's the little th blue and white threads. So many knots, five for Torah and eight threads for the seven and the eighth day and all these things. It's symbolic and it's teaching us to keep God's commandments, his teachings. So we wear them. And I asked him today, I said, what, what, what corner do you tie them on? And in the process, he gets a little confused. He starts digging into the interlinear. I think you were even in Bible Hub, weren't you? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I was in the Hebrew in Bible Hub. So what did we run into? You thought it was the undergarment you tied it into. Yeah. And it turns out it's tied to the corners of what? Your wings of your garment? Yeah, it, it, it actually, you know, it's in most translations, it says corner. But that's not what it says in Hebrew. It says on the wing. Now, why is that important? And how does that help us? Because in the wings of your garment is a Hebrew idiom for what, Charlie? <laughs> your talit. Yes. Your prayer shawl. Yeah, it very well could be. 
No, all, more than more than likely, because yes. we know that it's used that way in several places in Scripture. It's just like when Jesus says he wishes he could gather the you know Jerusalem under his wings. Under his, he uh, means under his yes. prayer shawl. Well, why is that important? Because the prayer shawl is a physical representation of Yahweh's tent that he covers over his people, of the tabernacle, his Torah and his his word. It is a physical representation of that. So there's some... It, it all, that's yeah. Hebrew thinking. You swirl it together. This is why I said you got to know the culture. So now, what does this change as far as salvation and, and basic doctrine of the kingdom? Nothing. Nothing. But for Charlie and I, we're at a point now where we like the salt and pepper and the hot sauce that comes with digging mm -hmm. into this yeah. stuff. Okay, because that's that's all it is, is it's spicing up the word. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's just interesting when you when you look at some of these things and it it it, it add like you said, it adds flavor to your understanding of things. Now occasionally that flavor will set off a doctrinal key in oh, your head. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes this can be significant. Uh, I've had that happen many times, and that's that's what motivates me in continuing to study Hebrew because Hebrew is not the easiest language to learn. <laughs> and now I'm getting into intermediate grammar, and oh my gosh! No. <clears throat> but um, but it, sometimes you'll come across something when you're translating and you're looking at it, and you're like, hold on, hold on a second, this is totally different from what I ever saw or understood and it's like and sometimes it's it's doctrinally significant you know what one of the best examples is thou shalt not kill <laughs> what does it really say charlie thou shalt not murder there Big is a difference. difference there is a huge difference when you look at definition as you like to say definition because there's a difference between killing and murdering thanks charlie yep all right Done with that rabbit. We'll get back to what we were doing. Okay, so that's an interlinear Bible. Um, now we're going to run into some translation controversies. Oh, boy. King James only. Oh, before we even do that, let's, um, let's just pop this into the smaller. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We got a good question on the board. Clay Tolar. I hope I'm saying your name right, sir. How do we know that some of the words in the Bible aren't slang for the times like we do now? You don't. And in fact, we know that a lot of them are. Yes, and this is where things get tricky and we get we get yes. really really mucked up sometimes when we're looking at some of these things because if you don't take the original language, history and culture together, you're yes. going to get it wrong. And some of this we simply don't know because we don't have um, the uh, toller. Okay, head. thank you, sir. Um, <clears throat> but uh, sometimes, you know, we, we get it wrong. Sometimes there's not enough information to totally understand yes. it because a lot of times there are Hebrew idioms that, you know, and sometimes there's words that we just don't know what they mean because they're only used like one or two times in the entire Tanakh. And we're guessing. Remember what I said, get comfortable not knowing your best guess. And that's yes, why you'll hear me yes. say this all the time. And, and Natasha and Charlie will test to this. I got two witnesses. I say this all the time, my best understanding at this time. And that, and that's what we need to do. We need to be open to other interpretations, other 
concepts so that we can, you know, figure it out. Clay Tolar says so we could be wrong in translation. Yes. yes. In some in some places, usually it'll be small stuff, not big. Yeah, usually, but yes, we could be wrong. This is this is small things, you know. Yes, this is usually kind of like small we, stuff. What we were talking about, you know, like what could, does kanaf mean and stuff and is regarding the seat seats and things like that. Um, but that's that's where as best you can if you can have the Bible translate the Bible. Yes, and that's what I was that about to say. Is where you can really solidify things. If you have dug into the word on a regular, long, deep basis, some of these Hebrew idioms start clicking in your head. Like eat it up. When when Yeshua says, Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, everybody thinks cannibal. That's not what he's talking about. That's the same Hebrew speaking as when um he, he's in the Bible and he in book of revelation rather. And he tells John, here's the scroll, eat it up to eat it up in, in the Hebrew mindset means to accept it, to take it in and make it part of your thinking in your life. So when he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he's telling them, unless you accept my teaching and the covenant that I'm bringing you, you can't be part of me. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This teaching's too tough. That's what they meant. And if you read the scripture there in the New Testament, it says that the people say, oh, this, this, this teaching is too tough. So there's a hint at that idiom. Here's where we get in ourselves in trouble a big time in the Christian church. It says, do not think that I have come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Oh, be careful with that. We know what that means. It's in the rabbinical writings, but it's also in the New Testament in more than one place. It's slightly different worded in a couple of places, but the, 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 the law and the prophets is their way of saying the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But that's this, in the rabbinical writing. But to not to destroy, but to fulfill, that's a rabbi's way of saying, I haven't come to pervert it or corrupt the, the, the Torah. I've come to correct it. But this is where we get wrapped around the yes. axle. Because there are people that will argue over what that means. There's no reason to argue. It's in the rabbi's thing. writings. But they'll they'll take they'll do a word study. Yes. And they'll talk about the meaning of pleru, which is the word used there in the Greek for fulfill. And they will argue and argue and argue over what that really means. But like you're saying, if you go outside that and you look not just at the word, but you look at the concept provided along with the historical and and well, cultural. it's also mentioned two or three other times in the yes. New Testament. It's just so slightly are, worded different. Yeah, Paul so even mentions things, it. Yeah, and those, and, and that, I, and again, you know, go back to if you can get the Bible to trans. Yep, uh, concept for to, concept. Uh, you know, translate itself, then you got it. All right. Hopefully that helps, folks. But translation controversies. All right. This is where folks might need to put their steel-toed boots on and 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 buckle up and hold on and. Um, this is where y'all start throwing darts at me, but I'm going to warn you right now. I was a tanker, remember? If you're going to hurt me, you're going to have to hit me in the backside because the front's very thick. Things bounce off. King James only controversy. It's not the Bible if it's not the King James. <clears throat> Wrong. <sighs> All right. The gentlest way I can explain this to you. The King James Bible was written as a direct retaliation against the Geneva Bible of 1599. That Bible was written by the Protestant move, uh, movement mostly, you know, Luther and Calvin, people like that helped to make that happen. 
there are footnotes in the Geneva Bible of 1599 that go directly against this idea of the divine right king. The 1599 Geneva Bible is the Bible of the founding fathers of the United States of America. That's the one they primarily used. King James did not like that because it was political in nature. So he had the Bible translated and the men he commissioned to do this devout, well, well-meaning believers. They had a reverence for the word of Yahweh. They were working from a Masoretic text. So they were told, translate the Bible into English and get all that political crap out of there from the 1599 that says I can't be king, you know, that I don't have a divine right. So that's how your King James Bible came about. Now, in the process, they did not have the modern scholarship of the original Hebrew language, so they made some guesses in how they translated it. At, they translated it as they understood it the best they could at the time. Things like there's a unicorn in the Bible in the King James. And not, that we now know that the word means bull. This is why you have a unicorn and a lion in the symbol of the of the English you know, royal monarchy. You just put a bull there, and you, and you will have Israel in that shield and crest. And if you understand what's going on, you understand this. You get this. Just like they also says that the, the youth are mauled by the bear when the prophet calls down, you know, and we think a bunch of kids are mauled by a bear. The Hebrew word there would be better translated juvenile delinquents. Okay, so it, it, there's some things in the King James Bible. It wasn't done, there's no malevolence here. There's no maliciousness. Wasn't done on purpose. But it's just that they were working from what they had at the best time as they could, but it was politically motivated Bible. And it has evangelized a great part of the world through history. And there's nothing wrong with it, especially the new King James. But you do not have to read out of the King James Bible to get where you're going. In fact, I prefer the NASB and I read it. And when I'm studying, I'm getting ready to teach a lesson or something. I've always got the ESV right next to it and the interlinear up on my computer screen. The NASB and the ESV are literal translations. If you're going to ever read out of one of those, read the front. And it tells you there's some there are, uh, devices that they use, like italicized, to let you know that that word's not in the original language. They had to gloss. It's called a gloss. It's things that have to be added to help make the thought in English flow the same way it would in the Greek or the Hebrew. And there's notes, and I use a study Bible. So it'll give me notes down at the bottom that tells me you know, where there's translational choices, why they made the choice they did, and things like this. There'll be notes from the translators that help you through all this, okay? But the King James does not have to be the only thing you study from. Note from Clay Toller, comment on the board, why did the other book get removed from the Bible to fit the narrative? Um, the other books that get removed from the Bible were removed because they were thought not to be inspired by the Holy Spirit or to contradict the basic books. It's, it's got nothing to do with the narrative here. Um, King James pretty much just copied the Geneva 1599 Bible, the, the Masoretic texts, and that's how they got where they're at. Um, and the, remember the Masoretic text, that's Jewish, Jewish writing. Plus they kept the one, the, the new Testament books that they wanted to keep. You can get into reading on all that, how that got there. We, we were covering which books were included and excluded in the first hour. So that's what I want to say about the King James book. And we're just going to pop into another one. Why did the NIV remove verses from the Bible? All right. This is going to start a controversy about the modern 
new international version, the NIV Bible. Oh boy, hold on. First of all, they did remove some verses from the scriptures. And it's based on the idea that we've got older texts now, and these verses are not found in those older texts, so they should be removed. You've got to be careful with that thinking. In large part, it's justified, but only after a lot of careful study. Where, what part, what region of the, of the world did those older texts come from? And if you're a text, you know, one of these people who study older ancient documents, you can, there are tells, you know where it was coming from. Is it in the Western Roman part? Is it the Eastern Byzantine? Is it the Judean Coptic area down, or is it Ethiopian? What, what part of the church did it come from? This is important because for the same reason that certain regions of the Bible, you know, of, of the, of the faith liked one book for the Bible and some didn't, certain passages are argued over as well. So just because you have an older text does not mean it wasn't in the original. And it doesn't mean it wasn't known to the church. One of these passages is like when Jesus sits down and he starts writing in the ground where they bring the woman to him and he says, let him who is without you know, guilt cast the first stone. That's a disputed text. So it fits. That fits everything I know about the nature of the Messiah and his teachings. I see that. I, I, I don't have a problem with that teaching. It, it just fits. But certain passage, certain places like it, certain people don't. So the passages that have been removed from the NIV, at the very least, they should have put a note down there. They should have put them in the Bible, and they should have footnoted it, but they didn't do that. Also, the modern NIV, starting in 1984, has started to rewrite the scriptures to make them more culturally palatable to our times, meaning that they've started taking the him and the her and the, and the sexual references out of the scripture, making it neuter. You cannot do that. There are certain roles in scripture that Yahweh assigned to females. There are certain roles that he assigned to males. This is not chauvinistic. This is not misogyny. This is not down on women. This is not feminism. This is Yahweh, the rule maker, said, you do this, you do that. The NIV has started to take that out of there. And they have started to modify the, the translation so that as to be culturally sensitive to hate words. And the newest NIV translations have taken all condemnation of homosexuality and some of those sexual promiscuity out of the scriptures. Moses would tell you that that's a violation of Yahweh's command not to alter his teaching. So I am very careful with modern translations of the NIV. I do not recommend people read it. Me, my personal opinion. I have an NIV Bible at home, and I use it for my studies. It was published in 1984 before this political correctness crap started. If you dig into this deep enough, and you will have to dig, you're going to be looking in the fourth, fifth, sixth page return, or you're going to have to learn how to question the internet properly. But if you dig into the scholarly works, they'll tell you that the modern NIV is a problem if you want to be true to the teachings of the, of the scriptures. Then we have this thing here. It's the Sefer. This is not a Bible. There's a note in your homework, in your class notes today about this. You'll find it. It says, what is the Sefer? The people who wrote it are not scholars at all. They basically took the King James Bible and started jamming Hebrew words in there wherever they wanted. 
And they said, this is the true translation of the original scriptures. This is coming out of the Hebrew roots movement. They've even named it to seem like it's more Hebrew. It's got no historical foundation whatsoever. It removes the divinity of Christ. And it, it is a hot mess. I, this is not a Bible. If you read the Sefer and you, you want to argue with me, knock yourself out, Jack. You're going to break yourself on this rock. That is not a Bible. It's been bastardized. Period. So be careful with it. Yes, Charlie? I'll give a second opinion to that one or second witness. Uh, yeah, because I've, I've tracked some of their footnotes and what they I have two of them at home. Supposedly say, yeah, I've got one. And um, yeah. And the I'd two say, I have don't agree. I would stay away from this. Yeah. Anything labeled to suffer, the two I have do not, they're not the same translations. So, and they're significantly different and they both remove the divinity of Christ. So yeah, that right there is a heresy. That would have gotten you condemned by the apostles. And then we have this, the message. That's not a Bible either. That is just, I have no doubt that they tried to put it in a, you know, they, they say it's the Bible in contemporary language. No, it's not. No, it's not. You have to study your Bibles to understand it. But I, I had a copy of the message and that one I got rid of. I keep the Sefer strictly for apologetic work with people who follow it. The message was such a mess to me that I just got rid of it. I circular filed it. I didn't even give it away. I threw it away. Um, this is the same type of thinking that'll get you to that little book in the movie, the house or whatever the heck it is, where a guy spends the, you know, a weekend or a summer with the three, the Holy, the Trinity, the Holy spirit, Jesus, and mama God. Um, this is, yeah, the shack. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's the same type of thinking. This is new age. This is apostasy, apostasy and heresy. I'm sorry if you read it and you like it, that, that's fine. Knock yourself out, but that is not scripture. And you will not find the true gospel in that translation right there. They tried. I understand what they were trying to do, but I'm hostile to this thing, as hostile as I am to the Sefer. I've read it. There's a reason I'm hostile to it. My contradiction bells went off all the time in this thing. No, 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 no. Because this gets back to what Clay Tolar was saying. The one who translated this and the people who have translated these are all chasing an agenda. So they have perverted the scriptures to chase their agenda. Mm -mm, no, 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 no. So now we have some Bible study tools online for you. I'm going to share the ones that there are plenty of them. And there's some of them I didn't list. And there's a reason for this. Um, some of them I just haven't found yet. I mean, there's a lot of them. I've stuck with the ones that are most useful to me. Um, I used to use CARM, which is a Christian apologetics um, site. And I used to use Got Questions. But as I've learned more and more about the scriptures, I've moved more and more back toward the, the way. I don't know what to call myself other than the way. I'm not Christian. I'm not Jew. I'm not this, that, or that. I follow the way. You know why I use that phrase? It's old and New Testament phrase for the way. But it's the way to walk. The Mandalorians, that's a secularized version of the Bible's teachings. This is the way. This is the way Yahweh tells us. This is the Torah. Charlie's found this too. Um, 
It's in the scriptures. That's that's what the scripture calls it. The way Paul says, "I'm a follower of of the the, the the supposed sect, the way, or what they call a sect, the way." So I'm a follower of the way. And the closer I got to the way, the more and more I realized that certain reference pages they come at the scriptures from a point of view that I no longer agreed with. So I've abandoned them. Not that they're necessarily wrong. They were a stepping stone on the growth my my spiritual growth, and they served me well at that time. So if you use them, fine. They helped me grow. I'm not condemning them, not in the least. I'm just going to share with you the ones that I've run across. Now, you want to find the road to Concord today, roadtoconcord.com. Find the page for today's home notes, you know, show class notes, bookmark it. If, if what I do interests you or if you, if you want to follow along, because I'm going to update it from time to time. As, and there's some things I'll add to it later. That, that aren't there now, but my number one, my go-to Bible gateway. Oh boy, do I love this place. And you don't even have to subscribe, but if you do, it's not expensive, but you can highlight, you can read your Bible. You can highlight on it, it you know, online, it'll be an online Bible, but and it, this loads on your phone. You can make notes. You can look at different translations. You can even go to the Mount's interlinear Bible in there and look at the Greek. And it, it's, this is just a, gr there's plenty of articles in there. Notice I was quoting the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha from Bible Gateway. And it, it's a big long one. And there's some of the links are in your homework today, your, your class notes. Very detailed, very good, solid work here, folks. I love it. My secondary one, primary uh, interlinear is right here at Bible Hub. I am on that place all the time. I live there. I live there. Yep. So, <laughs> and, and mostly when I'm there, it's the interlinear translate, or they will also do this thing. They do, they've got a page of comparative translations. You can put up a comparative page verse and it'll give you like every major English translation of the Bible. It tells you how that verse reads. I'm on that page all the time, especially when I'm doing, you know, teaching studies. Then there's Bible study tools. This one's a little bit like Bible gateway, not in some cases, it, I don't think it's as powerful a tool, but in some cases they've got academic articles that it's the best that I've found so far. So I, I do check this place from time to time when I'm, especially when I'm wrestling with weighty matters, then the blue letter Bible. I don't use it often. I don't find it easy to use, but that's me. A lot of y'all probably like it better than I do, but it's useful. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, very good tool. Um, you're going to find some others that I've put up there. Um, there's a, that, like I said, is it Chabad or Chabad? Chabad. Is dot, it .org? Dot .org, I think. Yeah. That's a Jewish site to help you with uh, study in the Old Testament, the talk. Um, I've got a couple of other, whoops, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to dump that. Sorry, folks. I've got a couple other sites that I'll add to your homework in, in time. Um, and I got a site up there about the uh, ancient Hebrew culture research. So you'll find that on your home, you know, your show notes on the road to Concord. And that helps you recover the culture because you have to learn how to look at this from their cultural perspective. Yeah. Another software I use and it. Oh, eSword. eSword. I link them to eSword yes. on there. And uh, eSword is a very powerful tool. Yes. And it's powerful. free. Yes. But for those of you who, I mean, you just want to go nuts. If you've got the money, I linked you to Logos. Now I've got that program at home. Ooh, baby. But oh boy, 
powerful tool. Um, but that's going to be for academics mostly. That is a huge, powerful tool. And it's got a library. Oh, man. It's, I am in Bible geek nirvana on that, on that program. And I'm still just learning to use it. But it's going to cost you about $3,500. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a reason for that. Those people have every right to ask the money for what they've built there. If you ever watch some of Dr. Heiser's videos, when he's clicking along on his screens and he's showing you, he's using logos and oh boy, is that a powerful program. But eSword is just about as good. You have to really be a pointy head. You, you got to be like Charlie now. You got to be a geek wonk to want to do logos over eSword. eSword will take care of you. Good tool. Link you to it on the, uh, on the homework today. So, I think we've covered this for today. We're going to do some more basics like this next week, and we're going to cover some of this other stuff. I might actually take the time to really dig into the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha before we move on, because I know that that is a big stumbling block for folks. They want to know why are these books not in my Bible? So I think that, Charlie, you think that might be the best thing to do next? Should that be where we go? Uh, I'm sorry. I was. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Well, I was just thinking maybe we should next week we should tackle the pseudepigrapha and apocrypha in detail before we move on to help folks understand why those those things are pretty much removed from the canon. Yeah, we could do that. All right. That's what we'll do next week. We'll tackle that one, folks, in detail. And and, and in the process, we'll also go over a little bit more about how your canon got established and the different very, you know, the different parts of the original Catholic Church, the five churches that are listed in your Bible. They're in your Bible. So we'll go over that. Um, and then tomorrow, tomorrow's donut day, man. I'm just going to freewheel it, Jack. I'm going to talk to y'all about time and dimensions. <laughs> It'll be an art bell day tomorrow. And I think Charlie's bringing donuts. So I, you'll understand if you're new and you don't oh, understand my. about the donut page. <laughs> yeah. He's going to be donated tomorrow. Yeah, I'll be donated. And then Friday, I think we're going to be talking about the Black Robe Regiment and the, and the role of the Great Awakening and, and the preachers in the revolution. Pretty sure that's where I'm still heading. I'll make the tortoise happy. Other than that, folks, it's about time to wrap this puppy up, man. We love each and every one of you. We thank you for being here. We hope that we have helped, especially with your scripture studies. If so, and if you like it, if nothing else, hit the thumbs up and the like buttons. That tells Charlie, Natasha, and I that you know we're doing okay by you. You like what we're doing. Don't do it if you don't feel that we did a good job. I don't want you to do something you don't feel, you know, your conscience. Nobody's forced to do anything against their will here. If you do think we're helping out and you have a friend or a relative that you want to, share the page directly with them. Don't just, I mean, we appreciate it if you share it on Facebook. Don't get me wrong, but we're being throttled. They'll probably never see it. Send them the link directly. Just explain to them that I'm, (laughs) takes a while to get used to me, man. I'm like, you know, black coffee with, you know, whatever else you want to add to it that other than sugar. <laughs> What's that stuff that the, you go to the Japanese restaurants, the wasabi. <laughs> so I'm black coffee with wasabi. You got to get used to me. I understand that. I know that I get it. I understand. So just explain to people what it's like beforehand, you know, tell them it's the message. That's, that's where the gem is. Other than that, man, y'all stay safe. Take care of yourself. We'll see you tomorrow when we go crazy. Bye.